Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. We're doing John 8, 1 through 11 today, and it's, it's Christ and the woman caught in adultery. But I came up with a new title, and it's A Christ-like Response to Gay Marriage. Now, if you, uh, I just want to encourage you to hear the whole thing, because I think everybody's going to be surprised by something in this response of Jesus here. Everybody's going to be surprised, but if you're, if you're listening, I guess I'm really saying this for people on the podcast, listen through the, through the whole thing. Don't shut it off too soon, because there's going to be some surprises. But as you all know, the Supreme Court ruled against the sanctity of marriage. We all know that. Now anything goes, but what I'm really afraid of is what's going to go is our country. Not because we've legalized homosexual marriage, but if you've read Romans 1, this is just another step. There's many things in Romans 1 that are listed, uh, all kinds of sexual sins and a lot of other sins listed too, that are all steps to God's judgment. And this is just another step down the destructive path laid out in Romans 1, which I'm sure we'll visit at some point. The reason it's scary is because the true Supreme Court, capital letter Supreme Court, not lowercase, the true Supreme Court has already ruled in heaven. He's ruled regarding marriage because he created it and he gave us his purpose for it. And if you go back, we just were spending, we spent a couple weeks at the beginning of Mark chapter 10. We're in Mark 10, of course, right now. And we spent a few weeks on that, on marriage. And we talked about divorce. We talked about connecting the dots. And we talked about, uh, you know, how important it is, no matter what has happened in our past, to stay married now. We, we stressed that whole part of that, especially as Christians. Uh, get the CDs, listen to the podcast. We also talked about the Supreme Court has also ruled, ruled how, what happens to a country that turns its back on God. And it's not just gay marriage, once again. It's a lot, a lot of things. It's, it's a lot of things listed there in Romans chapter 1 that we all share in. And in Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, we have to take these words to heart from the true Supreme Court He says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. A passage to really take to heart on this July 4th weekend as we celebrate our country's independence, but I hope we're not celebrating uh, its decline too. But that's apparently where it's headed right now unless there's a, a revival and a spiritual awakening. It's a very interesting timing that last week we had John Freeman here from Harvest USA. The timing for him to be here in New Hope at that time, he's one of the few ministries. We had planned this a long time before, but he, just at the same time as the Supreme Court ruling, John Freeman with, with Harvest USA, one of the few ministries to the sexually broken that has stayed faithful to God's word, that hasn't caved in and stayed faithful to God's truth. And I want to build on what he shared last week. If you weren't here last week, get the the CD or go on the podcast and listen. But I want to build on it, and I want to ask this question. How do we respond to individuals who are trapped in sexual sin? How do we respond to those who are trapped in sexual sin? We are, as Supreme Court, gay marriage, so obviously homosexual, but a lot of people who aren't 
homosexuals, but they're supporting gay marriage. How do we respond to people that are, are trapped? And not just that, but we talked about, we spent a lot of time talking about adultery and a lot of other things and divorce and a lot of other things, right? So it's, it's not just one sin, but how do we respond to people who are trapped in sexual sin? And there's two, Christians often react in two wrong ways. One way we react is very judgmental or harsh. We pick on a particular sin while ignoring the one we struggle with. We really focus on some sin somebody else has, but it's usually not the one we have. We're real harsh on someone else, but not on our sin. And so that's one problem is we were very judgmental or harsh. But the other side, the other mistake Christians make is with false grace. False grace, which is just as bad. And that's, it's okay, God is love, and it doesn't matter how we live as long as love is the motive. And, and we, we, we allow for things that God doesn't allow for. And that's just as destructive as the judgmentalism. This passage in John 8 hits both wrong attitudes, and it shows Jesus' response. And what I believe our response should be a Christ-like response to, to people, whatever they're struggling with. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We all struggle with something, and we need, we need your constant mercy and grace to, to walk in freedom and to walk in victory. We also know people that struggle, and pray that your Holy Spirit would show us how to reach out to them and how to help them and how to be there for them. We pray your Holy Spirit would show us through your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read the passage first of all. John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So we see here, first of all, that we look at the first six verses where they try to trap Jesus. And um, I'll, I guess I'll just pick it up here with uh, verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They're trying to trap him here. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So we see the trap here that they're trying to lay. And Jesus has really ticked off the religious leaders, as we've talked about many times. He ticked them off because he told them the truth. He told them who he was, the Son of God, and he told them what they were, fakes, hypocrites. He called them out, and that's what they were. They were fake. 
And so they tried to trap him. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. And they think they found the perfect trap. No way out. There's no way out. Because if he says to stone her, then he's breaking Roman law. You see, the Romans had a law that only they could execute somebody. That's why, remember when Pilate, they, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, brought Jesus to Pilate? They knew they couldn't kill him legally. Uh, so they, they, were, they were hoping that he would break the Roman law, and then they, they could then uh, get Jesus executed by the Romans. If Jesus, though, says, let her go, he's not breaking Roman law. Now he's breaking Jewish law, the Jewish law. In the Old Testament, it says stone, someone caught in adultery, right? And so if he breaks that law, he goes against the Jewish law, they're hoping they can incite the mob to break out and stone Jesus before the Romans can come and rescue Jesus. They were hoping they could spark some kind of a riot and get him killed. And that's what they're hoping to. Remember what happened with Paul. Many times they would stone Paul. It was against the Roman law, but they would do it fast, and sometimes the Romans would come in and save him. Sometimes they wouldn't get there in time. And so that's the, the picture of what they're trying to do. He's either going to break one, either the Roman law or the Jewish law, and either one can get him killed. So they, they think they have him trapped, but not so fast, because look what Jesus says here. Verse 6, I'll read it again. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him he straightened up and said to them if any one of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her again he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there so not so fast whenever someone was caught in adultery both the man and the woman were supposed to be brought for accusation. But they only brought the woman. Where was the man? <laughs> Where was he, by the way? Uh, they, these Pharisees were breaking God's law. God's law, you say you brought the, husband, the, the man and the woman together for the accusation. They only brought the woman. So already they're breaking Moses' law, the law of God. Then the priest would stoop down and write the name of the people and the law that they had broke, whether it was adultery or something else that was very serious. They, they had to write somewhere temporary. It could have been any, any, any temporary way. It could be crayon on the wall, whatever. But, but the point was the, the, the priest would usually use the floor of the temple because dust would accumulate, and he would, they would write the, the person's name, and then they would write what law they broke because after it was done, you could just erase it with your hand, and it, would be, it was supposed to be temporary. All right, They didn't do this. They just brought him to Jesus, but nobody wrote, wrote anything down. So Jesus did. He, he took on the, the role of the priest of the temple who was supposed to write it down. But what Jesus wrote wasn't what they expected. It wasn't her name and her sin. It wasn't her name and her sin. What did he write? We really don't know. But the best guess that we can figure out here is he probably wrote their names the first time. And the second time he bent over, he put something next to their names. Their secret sins. Very, very likely, because that's why he says, who's ever without sin, throw the first stone. And he had just written their, their names. And I think there's a pretty good chance, we can't be dogmatic on that, but a pretty good chance. But whatever he wrote, it convicted them and it scared them and it, it caused them to all walk away. You know, they all, they, they all, it caused them, that's why they all slink, slink, slunk away, right? Because they, whatever he said was very convicting. And so often we are like these Pharisees. We throw, sin, we throw stones at the sins of others 
and we come across very mean. We focus on those homosexuals. And, you know, I use that tongue-in-cheek here because a lot, several, a lot of us here have struggled with, with that, right? And it's no big deal at our church. Um, you, people share that openly in testimonies, and we don't even think twice about that. But so often we focus, uh, churches, I'm using church, focus on those homosexuals, but we ignore our own sins. We are all sexually broken in some way. That's why I never preach on homosexuality without mentioning adultery, premarital sex, any kind of a lust, pornography. I, I name them all at the same time. I, I, I never name just homosexuality because they're all equally serious in God's sight. And there is mercy and grace for all who turn to Jesus Christ. Yes, homosexuality is a sin. It's a very serious sin. But we must speak the truth in love. We must speak the truth in love. It's vital that they sense someone who's struggling with homosexuality or not struggling, living that life. It's important that they sense our love for them. That has to be the motive for why we say something. Because if we say it for any other reason, that's not Christ-like. If we say, we, we t- call out some, somebody's homosexuality or homosexuality per se, and, we, and, we, and there's not love behind it, then we have no right to say it. We have to speak the truth in love. In fact, Ephesians 4 is a great passage on this. In Ephesians 4, 14 to 15, it says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. It says, don't be taken in by deceitful scheming. And that's what you get with, with any sin in our culture. They, they come up with all kinds of ways to excuse it and, and, and spin it and, and take responsibility off of people and say, well, God didn't really say that. And even so-called pastors will say, yeah, it doesn't really say that in the Bible, that this is wrong or that is wrong. And, and they do all hermeneutical gymnastic backflips to do it. But we're not supposed to be caught into that. But don't be caught by deceitful. Don't be deceived. Do speak the truth in love. And that's so essential that we still speak the truth, but it's always in love. And a lot of you know what happened when we first started the church here, and, and there were some radical groups that tried to close the church down. Some of you remember the picketing and the policemen and all the stuff that happened years ago. Uh, but I remember the turning point. The turning point is as I, we got to know the people and they got to know us and see that, yeah, we did think homosexuality was wrong and adultery is wrong and everything, any sexual sin outside of a husband-wife marriage wrong. We call that, but they also saw that we weren't judgmental, that we loved them, we cared about them, that, that people were, with AIDS were welcome here and, and they would be loved and cared for. And, 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 and I remember the turning point when, when one of the, leaders of one of the groups said to me, we, we know you don't believe, you don't agree with us and believe what we believe, but we know that you care about us. That's vital, that, that people know that we care about them because we're speaking the truth in love. Now back to John chapter 8, we'll go to verse 10 now. In John 8, 10 and 11 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, so many people quote this story to defend sinful lives, whatever they are. And they'll say, uh, you know, they stop after verse 9 or they stop after 11a and they say, now don't judge, you shouldn't judge, don't judge and don't throw stones and Jesus never condemned. But that's only half of the story, isn't it? That's leaving out a very, very important sentence, the, the, the culmination of what Jesus was, was teaching. What did he say? Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. He didn't say, listen, miss, I know you can't help it, so it's okay. Or, or it's, it's okay if you love the guy, that, then it's okay. You can go back to him. Or it's too strong. If it's too strong of a temptation, that's okay. No, he said, go now and leave your life of sin. Some of you have the older version where it says, go and sin no more. I love that. Concise. Go and sin no more. It's shocking how many church attenders, notice I didn't say Christians, but church attenders have bought into a false grace. As long as two people love each other, and it's not just homosexual, heterosexual, any kind of sexual sin. So as long as two people love each other, God understands, and God loves love, and, and God doesn't care what lifestyle we live, who we have sex with, as long as, as love is connected somehow with this event. That sounds nice, but it's a lie. It's a lie. And it completely contradicts Jesus and his word. Jesus said, go and sin no more. 1 Corinthians 6, one of my, oh boy, I guess it's probably our verse for our church, this little passage here. 1 Corinthians 6 9 to 11 talks about this, how serious it is and, and how you have to take his words very serious. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what we were. We could all pick something on that list, can't we? And it's, it was a strong temptation for us. But that's what we were. The moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were justified, just as if we never sinned. We were washed. We became a new person in Jesus Christ, and it became what we were. Does that mean we never struggle with the temptation again? No. But it means that we depend on God's grace and we start to live in victory and we, we get that progressive holiness going and, and, and God begins to sanctify us. And, it, and even though we're positionally sanctified, it's a lifelong process of sanctification. And, and God begins to renew our mind and we become new people. And every one of us can pick something off that list. Probably we could add a lot to that list, couldn't we? And, but we know that's what we were. The moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that's what we were. Even if we fall again to it, it doesn't matter. We turn and ask for forgiveness and, and repent and, and ask God to give us extra grace and we get help for that from other Christian brothers and sisters because we know that's not we, what we are. That's what we were. And then down a little bit further, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Sexual sin is serious. Any relationship, any sexual activity, any relationship outside of a husband and wife sexual relationship in the Old Testament would get you stoned. Not by drugs, but by rocks. Stoned. You were killed by stoning. And, and it's a physical picture. It sounds so harsh, but God gave the people in the law. The law is very serious. In the law, God gave a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is that sexual sin is destructive. It's destructive, and it has serious consequences. Sex was given to, to a husband and wife as a powerful force to make them one flesh, to bring them together and form a, a union of one flesh. It's a powerful force, but when it's aimed somewhere different, when it's aimed outside of a marriage, it destroys spiritually. It destroys emotionally. It destroys mentally. It destroys physically. Many of us have scars from it, don't we? It dis, it's destructive, and it has serious consequences. And if we don't repent of it, the consequences are permanent and eternal. That's what the Bible teaches. And we must speak this truth in love. How is God speaking to us? Maybe it's about our own sin. It's not those people out there, but maybe it's our own sin that he's convicting us of. Our sexual sin. Maybe it's lust, pornography, self-sex premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality. Jesus says to each one of us, go and sin no more. We, cannot help being, we can't help being tempted. Remember what John Freeman said last week? But we can help being where we can be tempted. We can help cutting off tempting situations, people, places, or things. But we can't help being tempted, but we can choose to turn. We can choose to turn to God for help. Ephesians 4, 14 to 16. Awesome passage. Another one of my favorites. I have so many favorites. The whole Bible. All right, here we go. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Whenever we face that temptation, we, right away, the moment it first hits, not after, maybe we've already fallen, whenever it happens, but the ideal is as soon as that temptation first hits, go right to the throne. Or right when we're struggling, go right to the throne. Or after we've fallen, go right to the throne. Don't wait for, oh, I'll wait for a week till I get myself together. Go right to the throne of grace. Ask for God's mercy. Ask for God's grace. Is right away. We, have to, we can choose. That's the choice we have. We can always choose our temptation, but we can choose what we do that temptation and who we turn to. We turn to Jesus Christ, and we go to God's throne and ask for God's mercy and grace. Mercy, forgiveness, grace to help us in our time of need. And often that involves getting help and giving help. That involves getting help. Sometimes we go to the throne, but it's so powerful we need to get help from the body of Christ. In Galatians 6, in Galatians 6, 1 to 2, says this. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, 
or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We often need to turn to someone to help carry our burdens, or we often are called to help carry somebody else's burdens, to help somebody else who's struggling. That's what that, that, that God has called us to do that, and we need we need other brothers and sisters in Christ to help us. People have been through what we've already been through. Or we need to help other people that are going through what we've gone through. We have to do that. But we can't help if we're judgmental. People won't approach us. People won't trust us if we come across like we're perfect and judgmental and harsh. Are we legalistic Pharisees focusing on the fault of other people while blind to our own sins? Or do people sense our brokenness, our humility, do they see us as safe and approachable? Do they trust us to speak the truth in love? And we should all be like this, shouldn't we? We should all be very, very understanding. Because the woman caught in adultery, this woman's problem is all of our problem. Jesus' dilemma here in John chapter 8 is the same one he faced with each one of us. With the same problem he faced with the entire human race. How can God be both merciful and just? How can he be just and still be merciful? He created us. He loves us. He, but we've all sinned. We've rebelled against him. We've turned our back on him. We've broken his law. And a penalty must be paid. God is holy. Before God is anything, understand God's main attribute. Before God is anything, God is loving. God, no, God is holy. That's number one on the list. His holiness. Holy, and holiness burns against sin. If you read the Bible, you see that his holiness burns against sin. And God is just. If God overlooks sin, if he overlooks sin, then he is no longer just. If a judge doesn't punish a lawbreaker, he's no longer just. He can't be a judge anymore. And God is the ultimate judge, and, and he's just. That's one of his, another attribute. And if he winks at sin, he's no longer just. And the result will be cosmic anarchy. God is just. So we're stuck. We were stuck. We all deserve a stoning. We all deserve to be stoned. We all deserve death physically, spiritually, and eternally. And Satan is standing there accusing God and accusing Jesus and saying, See, you're stuck now, aren't you? They're just like the Pharisees, he's accusing us. You're stuck, aren't you? You have to stone them. The same justice that cast me out of heaven... The same holiness that cast me out of heaven with a third of the angels is the same justice that demands that you doom them too. The creatures that you made in your image, these creatures that you love so much, they're lost for eternity. But God had a secret plan that caught Satan completely off guard. God's solution is outlined in Romans 3, verse 25. In Romans 3.25 it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that sin must be paid for. Justice demands it. And he still allowed for God's mercy. He still allowed for his mercy to be shown and still keep his justice. How? Someone 
took our place. Someone took our stoning. Jesus took our stoning, our beating, our punishment on the cross. How do we receive that mercy? He did something for us, but how do we receive that? Back up a couple verses here in Romans. How do we receive this mercy? How do we receive this gift of forgiveness, this new life, this relationship with God as our Father? How do we reconnect with God as our Father? We just back up a couple verses in Romans 3 to verse 22. Right before it, he says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If we will repent of our sin, if we will put our faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him and surrender our life to him, we can receive this gift of forgiveness, of life, of righteousness, and we now have God as our father instead of our judge. That's what communion is all about. Communion this morning, which we're going to take here in a few moments, is all about it's remembering. It's remembering what Jesus did, that Jesus died, and it, the, the bread rep, represents the body that he died on the cross, and the, the cup, the grape juice, represents his blood that he shed on the cross for us. He gave it for us in our place. That should have been us. This is our July 4th celebration. Just as we reckon, you know, re- celebrate our independence on July 4th, this is our independence. Communion. Every time you see fireworks, remember, that's, my, that's a reminder of my freedom. Not just as a country. That's small compared to my eternal freedom in Jesus Christ. And what it is, 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 is we, take, we take the bread and we take the cup. When you feel, if you feel led and feel ready, you just walk up and get it and walk back. And you can take it up front. You can take it in your seat. You can take it alone. You can take it with your, your uh, a friend or your family. However you feel led, it's between you and God. There's no right or wrong way. But the, the only reason you shouldn't take it are two things the Bible teaches. One is you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you can fix that this morning. You can pray and put your faith in Christ. The second thing is that there's a sin in our life that we will not surrender. The Bible says don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. If there's a sin, not that, I've noticed I didn't say a sin because we all have sin. We all walked in with many of them. But something I won't surrender. I say, God, you can have all this, but not this. This I'm hanging on to this one. Then don't take it. Wait. Because you know why? That sin is keeping us from communion, isn't it? That's keeping us from connecting to God, with God on a daily basis. And that's, this is a picture of that. See, th- we don't just commune with God on once a month. The whole idea is to commune with God every day, all day long. But sin comes between us. And, and ju- this is all about making it right so that we can commune. And then once again, it's not, I'm going to be perfect. But God, I surrender it. I'm asking you to help me. I ask you to forgive me. I need your mercy and grace. I hope that everyone here can take the Lord's Supper. But it's between you and God. We're just going to have some music and a quiet time of prayer and and when you feel led to take it, okay? Let's pray first. How is God speaking to us this morning, this communion Sunday? Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. But today the Holy Spirit is, is... calling you, drawing you to surrender your life, to repent of your sin, and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
No matter what you walked in with today, you can walk out forgiven with a brand new life. Whatever it was, you could say, that's what I was. But that's not who I am. Who I am now is a child of God. Through his son, Jesus Christ, I am forgiven and I have a brand new life. You can have that gift of life that starts now, the moment you put your trust in Jesus. This eternal life starts now. The real life starts now and goes throughout all of eternity. You can give your life to Jesus right now. Right where you're sitting. Just pray in your heart to God. God, I repent of my sin. Anything in my life that goes against your word, it goes against your law, I repent of it. I want to turn away from it. I ask you to forgive me. Because I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross in my place. He took my stoning. I believe that and I put my faith in him. My trust, my hope in Jesus. I surrender my life to you, God. If you've prayed that prayer, you, just like the woman caught in adultery, can no longer be condemned. You've been set free. We have been set free. And now you can commune with God any time. Not just here, Sunday morning communion service, but anytime you can talk to God as your Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's going to change your life. You've surrendered your life to Jesus, He's going to change your life. I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Maybe you came with a family member or a friend. Maybe you want to tell me on the way out or felt the card, stick it in the box or text me, call me, email. Let somebody know because we're going to be excited for you and also help you in your new life in Christ. Help you understand how to really live close to God and enjoy that communion with him. For those of us who are already Christians, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Maybe it's about our attitude. Maybe we've been judgmental and people were not the kind of person that people could approach with a struggle. 
Or if we tried to help somebody, they wouldn't trust us because they, didn't, they don't know how we would respond. Maybe God's speaking to us about our attitude. Ask, and we have to ask God to give, let, give us the, the, the Holy Spirit's help to speak the truth in love. Maybe there's a sin in our life. Well, there is a sin in our life. If we're breathing, there's a sin we're struggling with, right? That we need to go to the throne of grace this morning and ask for mercy and grace. At this communion time, say, God, I, I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness for what I've done or been doing or thinking about doing or or I need, I need your grace not to go back to that. And even if I show me who I need to talk to, if, there, if it takes more than that, if it takes a Christian brother or sister that I am accountable to and, and can have a close relationship and trust, show me who. Whatever it takes to live this life of mercy and grace. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would pour out in and through us during this time of communion. That would just be the start of a very, very close relationship with you today, this week, and just a start of something very special. I pray that each of us would know the joy and the peace of that communion with you. In Jesus' name.